Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what's the future of EU defence? And how does Ireland play a role? It's now four months since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, a move that has been devastating for Ukraine and its people, but also one that has had a ripple effect all across Europe. Leaders in European countries have scrambled to assess the level of threat to their own territories and re-evaluated their approach to military security. At the EU level, a commitment has been made to significantly strengthen European defence, including major investment to support development in a range of areas such as space-based technology, naval combat and cybersecurity. Here in Ireland, the conversation has very much been focused on the country's neutrality and the desire of the majority of Irish people to preserve that. So what will the war in Ukraine mean for the EU's defence strategy going forward? And what will Ireland's involvement in that look like? To dig into it, I'm joined by recently elected Senator and retired Army officer Tom Clonan. Tom, you're very welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Tom, I want to start by asking you, we've been hearing a lot about defence in Europe this year, particularly since the Ukraine invasion. But how coordinated is defence between EU countries? It is... There's, there's a number of answers to that question. So on the NATO side of things, uh, of the 27 EU members, uh, 21 are members of NATO. So NATO is well coordinated. It has long established kind of coordination structures between the different contributing states and has had a kind of a long track record of mobilising its resources to get involved in, in conflicts the parallel system in place kind of falls under the umbrella of the European Common Foreign and Security Policy. And with specific regard to the war in Ukraine, that would be, I suppose, Europe, the European Union's Common Security and Defence Policy, which is one of the pillars of the Common Foreign and Security Policy. But that's where it starts to unravel a bit. And the European Union uh, in terms of kind of conflict or war fighting or the projection of force, it's it's not fit for purpose, really. And what about the individual structures then to deal with the defence within the EU? When were they formed and what can you tell us about them? Well, the, the current kind of common security and uh, defence policy has its origins in the Lisbon Treaty, which was ratified in, in 2009. And since then over the last 13 years or so, the European Union has been making sort of slow attempts to rationalise uh, its defence and security across the member states. And uh, it's a kind of a mixed bag. But Ukraine has taken the European Commission and Europe rather by surprise, even though it was predicted. Uh, so in 2015, in the German white paper on defence, where the Germans published their sort of strategy and threat assessment going right out to, you know, up, up to almost 2030. Angela Merkel wrote a preamble in which she predicted uh, a land invasion uh, in Europe where Europe's borders would be reshaped by the use of force. And also she changed Germany's uh, threat assessment from one of terrorism or, you know, international extremists to one of a land invasion by another country. And you'd have to ask yourself, well, what country would invade Germany? And, and there's only, well, really one plausible answer to that. And so we see now uh, a war in Ukraine that has been predicted by a lot of uh, commentators, and uh, myself included, I've been pr predicting a war in Europe for 
for at least 10 years now. And, and it's happened. And we have to cope with that and accommodate to that. And there's not a great deal of consensus as to what's going to happen next or how Putin and Moscow will behave in Ukraine in, in the coming months, if not years. And we have been hearing an awful lot about NATO recently. What sort of interaction is there between these EU defence structures and NATO? And what's the point of having both? Why do they both exist separately? Okay, so NATO has its origins, you know, it goes back decades. And it is a very long established uh, kind of military alliance. It is dominated by the United States and until recently, uh, Britain. And so the United States sees NATO as the kind of the the cornerstone of what they refer to as the transatlantic alliance with Europe. And key in that transatlantic relationship or that transatlantic alliance was Britain. Now, since Brexit, Britain's influence in Europe has changed somewhat. And uh, I'll explain the significance of that when I go on to describe what, what the, you know, the parallel system to NATO is. So the United States is kind of sceptical about the European Union's uh, common security and defence policy. And it is particularly sceptical of what the Europeans refer to as their battle group system. So the Europeans set up, after the Lisbon Treaty, a battle group system where they have 18 regional battle groups all around Europe. For example, Ireland is a member of the Nordic battle group and At any one time, there are two European Union battle groups on what they call standby. So we were part of the German-led EU battle group in 2020, which was on standby for the latter half of 2020 during the height of COVID. So the theory is that the European Union can use these battle groups to go to go to war, essentially, in theory, at any point uh, within 10 days that they're ready to go, that they have a fully formed kind of double battle group system and um, to, to go into action where needed, either within Europe's borders or beyond Europe's borders. Now, the problem with the EU battle group system is that uh, it's great on paper and in theory, but there is no real certainty as to how it would perform uh, if it was called upon to mobilise. So it's actually they're, they're actually quite small. Each battle group consists of about one and a half thousand troops. So at any one time, then you've got 3000 troops in theory ready to go into battle. Now, that is different to the NATO battle group concept because they also have battle group concept uh, incorporated into their strategic doctrine. But they would have much larger combined arms forces that train regularly together, that do massive uh, on the ground or surface exercises at sea and in the air. So they're, they're far more ready to go. So the, the, the Americans, the United States, they're also a bit nervous of the fact that the European Union is now dominated by France and Germany. And up until now, Britain as a European Union member provided 20% of the military strength of the European battle group kind of concept and the European common security and defence policy that, you know, Britain was a huge component of that. But Britain is now gone. We're now dominated uh, in Europe by Germany and France. And they they have kind of different military ambitions to those that might be commonly understood by most Irish people. They they see um, the European Union as a great 
uh, economic success, as a great social success, and now they want to make it a political and military uh, success. So Europe is, in effect, de facto arming itself. And where there's a lot of rhetoric and narrative around uh, supplying weapons to Ukraine and keeping the war going uh, and trying to defeat uh, Russia within um, Ukraine's territory. So, so that's a, I would say, as an ob- as an objective military observer and as an academic who's who's published on military matters and and who is an avid uh, student of history, we're, we're at a quite a dangerous moment. So, besides Ukraine, are there other examples you can give us of the EU needing to use these structures? Yeah, so the, the European Union has has had some interesting kind of military interventions in the in the last decade or so. So at sea, the Somali pirate crisis down off the, the Horn of Africa, the European Union sent naval forces down in into that area to sort of help and assist and um, sort of deter piracy on, on European vessels transiting through that uh, sensitive kind of cargo route area. They also intervened in the Mediterranean more recently in light of the awful refugee crisis where thousands and thousands of refugees were were drowning in the Mediterranean, teenagers, children. And actually the Irish Naval Service was involved in that, you know, going down to intervene and rescue and, and give aid to people who were in distress at, at sea. So they, they've, they've done that. They also have intervened in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. They've we've we've sent troops and observers to places like Kosovo and outside of Europe the first kind of European expeditionary force now this is under the EU flag not NATO not the UN but the European Union flag and Europe sent a an expeditionary force to the Central African Republic and Chad in the mid-noughties and it was actually the Irish who led that uh, expeditionary mission in conjunction with the French. And that was a peace enforcement mission. It wasn't peacekeeping. It was actually a a fighting mission. Uh, And uh, so the European Union have also sent troops to other parts of Africa, Mali and elsewhere, to help train local armed forces against uh, Islamist extremists. So, you know, this kind of slow, underground, kind of quiet revolution has taken place over the last two decades, where Europe, the European Union has moved from being a kind of, as I said earlier, just a, an economic or social phenomenon, a kind of a trade alliance to being a kind of a political entity that is now, uh, you know, at the at, at the early stages of developing a, a military or force projection capacity. Now, the, the, the nervousness around that is that um, in the last century, Europe armed itself twice and in both on both occasions, it, they're associated with world wars. And you mentioned a couple of areas of involvement for Ireland. Uh, the Nordic Battle Group was one that you spoke about earlier. What is our role on a practical level in all of this? So, on a practical level, you know there are difficulties with our involvement in um, the European Union Battle Group system because whilst we do contribute troops. Um, to the actual battle group itself. And and we have an an expertise in, you know, explosive ordnance disposal or bomb disposal, dealing with improvised explosive devices. We're international leaders in that area because 
of our experience of dealing with the provisional IRA during the troubles, although that corporate knowledge is now almost gone from the organisation because of the difficulty retaining that talent. But we've also had a lot of experience of dealing with improvised explosive devices in in Lebanon, the Middle East. Uh, And so our troops went to, and this is going to confuse some listeners, our our troops were sent to Afghanistan as part of the NATO-led operation Enduring Freedom there um, to assist with their improvised explosive device uh, kind of effort because the vast majority of casualties sustained by the United States and our allies in Afghanistan were through the use of roadside bombs and other improvised explosive devices. So Ireland has played a key role in that and that's recognised within Europe. So we would play a role in in that component of the, the battle group system. At the kind of headquarters element, the as a parallel to NATO, so NATO's headquarters is is based in Belgium in in two ways. The the military headquarters are based there. Uh, Supreme uh, Allied uh, Command headquarters, Europe is is based in in Belgium, and the kind of the political leadership of NATO are based in Brussels. The European Union then set up a parallel military structure called the European the European Union military staffs, uh, which is also based in Brussels. Uh, or the EUMS and Irish senior Irish officers have had staff appointments at EUMS in Brussels and also in some of the European Union battle group planning cells in places like Sweden and in Germany. So, but the problem for Ireland is that we are bound by what's called the triple lock. So even though we we're, we're part of the European Union. And even though we're cognizant of the common security and defence policy, and even though we participate in the battle group's standby arrangement system and that we have people at the planning cells and headquarters, we're ba- we, we will only get involved in uh, sending troops if there is a UN Security Council mandate, number one, a resolution from the UN Security Council. Number two, there has to be Doyle and government approval before troops can be sent. And in that context, there's a nervousness amongst our partners that we can't really meaningfully respond to all situations. So in the case of Ukraine, for example, if if the Nordic battle group, the German-led Nordic battle group was sent to the border with Poland to do something like help with refugees or assist the Poles with their border defences, I don't think Irish troops could go because there wouldn't be a UN Security Council resolution on that because the Russians are never going to sign up to that. They're never going to agree to the deployment of troops um, to the border with Ukraine or anything like that. So effectively, Russia and China have a veto on Irish military involvement uh, anywhere in the world. And and that incorporate you know, includes a broad spectrum of things like humanitarian assistance in the case of man-made or natural disasters, peacekeeping or peace enforcement. We really can't send our troops without that UN Security Council resolution. And effectively, because of the structure of the UN, that that can be vetoed on a case-by-case basis by China or Russia. So we don't have the same freedom to get involved as our, as many of our European partners. And for that reason, they're a bit nervous about having us in a, a battle group system because they can't really depend on us to deploy. And Ireland's neutrality ties into all of this as well. How has the firm stance on neutrality been viewed across the rest of Europe? Is there a level of understanding or has that been unpopular in some camps? I, I think our European partners understand our neutrality 
very well. So, like, we are politically aligned with the European Union. We, we're politically in support of, for example, in the case of Ukraine, all aid and necessary support to, to Ukraine. Militarily, we do not belong to a military alliance like NATO or any other military alliance. But we have participated in NATO missions. So for the listener to understand the big change that's happened in Ireland kind of behind the scenes, 20 years ago, broadly speaking, Ireland did peacekeeping for the United Nations. That was it, really. You know, we did one task for one international organization. But now, as of 2022, we do peacekeeping and peace enforcement, not just for the United Nations, but also for NATO, because we are uh, we have observer membership of NATO in, in, a, in a structure called Partnership for Peace. So we became members of Partnership for Peace. And as a consequence, we can participate in NATO uh, peace enforcement missions around the world. And we have done so. So, for example, our troops have participated in the in the NATO led uh, mission to Afghanistan for for a very long number of years. Irish troops were involved in, in that conflict. Uh, we've had Irish troops participate in the NATO peace enforcement mission in Kosovo. And we even had an Irish general, a brigadier general, who was in command of a multinational division, a NATO multinational division in Kosovo um, during that, that, that period of instability. And we also do peace enforcement for the European Union, as, for example, with our mission then to Chad and the Central African Republic. So our neutrality is... I suppose what you could call it is is a kind of a pick and mix one. We decide on a case by case basis as conflicts arise around the world whether or not we're going to get involved. And we 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 get involved on the basis of that triple lock decision. Is there a UN Security Council resolution in force and is it palatable to uh, the government and the Oireachtas? So we we require both government and Iraq disapproval to, to send our troops. So that's our neutral status. So say Ireland was invaded today, which is hopefully a very unlikely scenario. Would other countries come to our defence? What would happen? Well, the most likely country to invade us or to militarily invene, intervene here would be the, the, the British Army uh, or the Americans, because, you know, we're of huge strategic value to both the United States and Britain. Um, and you'll have seen since 2003, you know, like literally, I think it's 2.5 or 3 million US troops have passed through Shannon Airport on their way to, you know, conflicts in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Asia, in Afghanistan and so on. So Ireland is and always has been of huge strategic value for the United States. Currently, our Ireland's controlled airspace and Ireland's de facto airspace is patrolled and defended by the Royal Air Force. And there is a, mem- a memorandum of understanding between the Department of Defence and the Ministry of Defence in the UK that in the event of incursions into our controlled airspace by uh, Russian aircraft, which has been happening with increasing frequency in the last number of, uh, of years, that the RAF will patrol, enter our controlled airspace, locate, close with, intercept and escort those aircraft out of our, out of our controlled airspace. So... You know, in terms of, you know, who who would invade us, if the Russians tried to intervene here, the British would not permit, you know, they would get involved, whether we liked it or not, in in defending us because they would not tolerate 
um, a Russian presence uh, on their border. And and we are the kind of the back door to Europe. I mean, a lot of Irish people feel, oh, Ireland is of no strategic interest to anybody. It's of no strategic value to anybody. Well, that's that's really uh, not the case. Um, you know, we have 50 in excess of 50 data centers with 30 percent of the European Union's uh, data. We're the digital connection between the United States and Europe. Uh, we have all these uh, transatlantic uh, subsea uh, fiber optic cables that link uh, the United States to Europe. Uh, 30 percent of the Internet data uh, traffic globally goes through those links to the United States. So we're of huge strategic value in so many different ways. And also, as you can see, with climate change and the accelerated impact of climate change with these severe droughts are having in Europe in June, mm. Ireland's uh, strategic importance as uh, as a supplier of food will also become increasingly important in the future. I mean, agricultural experts estimate that Ireland has the capacity to feed up to 60 million people. And guess what? That's roughly the population of our very large neighbour. <laughs> so we need to keep on good terms with the British. Uh, you know, so for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, we, we rely on others for our defence. And there is a debate now as to whether or not, A, we should pay our soldiers, sailors and aircrew a living wage. And then number two, should we actually invest properly in our defence so that we can you know, in some way claim that we're able to patrol our own waters, patrol our own skies and defend ourselves meaningfully on the ground. And I, I think that debate will take place and that flows from the Commission on the Future of the Defence Forces, which just reported earlier this year. And on a European level, right now, a new defence policy is being drawn up, a common European defence policy. That's called the Strategic Compass. Can you tell us about that and what that's going to mean for EU defence? Yeah, so again, this is part of Europe's, the European Union's drive to become more militarily coherent. So you've had institutions like the European Defence Agency were set up to, you know, to, to kind of make better use and rationalise Europe's spend on defence. So Europe spends uh, as a collective, the European Union, its member states, France, Germany, uh, formerly Britain, uh, Italy, all, and so on, they, they spend roughly one third of what the United States spends on defence and the military. But we don't have anything like one third of the United States uh, capabilities. And that's because in the United States, you know, they've got one armoured personnel carrier contract. They've got one main battle tank contract. They've got one you know, you know, sidearm or, you know, assault rifle contract, you know, they, they, whereas in Europe, you might have 12 or 13 different uh, armoured personnel carrier research and development programmes across different member states, different weapon systems like Steyr in Austria, FAMAS in, in France and, and so on. So, you know, there's an attempt to try and find out, well, who's doing what in Europe and can we avoid replication and unnecessary duplication and try and better mobilise our, our defence and military spending across Europe. So in parallel with that, then, there's also this desire under the Strategic Compass Initiative to try and identify what are the, the main threats to Europe going forward and how best can we respond to those collectively? Because at the moment, militarily, Europe is, is very wealthy. We're a very wealthy trading bloc. We're a very wealthy um, part of the world. We're rich in all sorts of resources. But from a military perspective, um, we, we don't really have the capacity 
to mount a collective defence uh, outside of the structures of NATO. And so that's what this strategic compass is, is trying to do, is trying to, you know, identify priorities for Europe independent of the United States, that we wouldn't be, you know, overseen, directed and governed by the United States. Now, the United States uh, will tell you through their public diplomacy, you know, their, their, <laughs> their uh, you know, their military attaches and so on, that they're actually, whilst they welcome a European Union's commitment to increase its spend on the military because they benefit from that hugely uh, by way of the military industrial complex. They're also nervous about what the European Union might try to do independent of NATO because Europe has gone to war, as I, saw, as I was saying earlier, twice in the last century. And on both occasions, the United States had to come and rescue us. And there are lots of Americans buried all over Europe that are testimony and evidence to that. So they're, they're just watching us with, with interest um, there, uh, they'll, they'll be. It's unfortunate that Britain has left the European Union, because whatever you might think about Boris Johnson or David Cameron or uh, their predecessors, you know, Britain was a very important uh, influence uh, within Europe and was a great ally to Ireland uh, whilst it was a member of the European Union. And now that the European Union is dominated by France and Germany. You know, watch that space. What direction will France and Germany take us in? So I think Irish people need to really think about what's happening in the world uh, internationally and what's likely to happen on this island in the next 10 to 15 years and figure out for themselves where they think the main threats to security and stability are coming from. Because we, 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 we do have emerging dynamic hybrid threats that um, we don't really hear about uh, in Irish media because there's a reliance on US and UK uh, analysts who uh, don't really think about the world from Ireland's perspective. So we're getting a, a European perspective or we're getting a British perspective or an American perspective, but we don't actually very often get the Irish perspective. Which, And we have so many academics, people like Ben Tonra and others who are very articulate and who really understand Ireland's uh, position in this changing geopolitical space, um, but we need to think about it. And how at risk is the EU on a wider level? How likely is it that this common defence strategy would have to be used? Well, I mean, it's it's we're an imminent. There's an imminent risk of escalation of the war in in Ukraine. For example, the the narrative on Ukraine has been reframed by Putin and Sergei Lavrov. So initially. They had intended to, de, you know, to decapitate the regime, to affect regime change, to take Kiev, to eliminate Zelensky and his uh, his administration, and to replace them with a puppet regime and take over the entire uh, Ukraine state, and to, you know, insert somebody like Lukashenko. They failed to do that, and they're now concentrated their use of force into the Donbas region. I think that they will take all of the Luhansk Oblast in the next week or two, and then they will concentrate their forces on um, Donetsk to take the entire Donbass region. They will then uh, re regroup, uh, re-equip, re-arm. And I would say if they're successful in this endeavour, they will then move on uh, Melitopol, um, Odessa, and try to get uh, connect up with Transnistria and possibly take Moldova. And that, that brings Europe very close to the brink of, of war with um, with Russia because Europe may decide that actually Ukraine's values, and you can see it now has EU candidate status, align with those 
of the European Union and that UK's interests also align with the, the interests of the European Union. And so we're, we're, we're not far off a scenario where you could see conventional combat between um, the European Union, backed by France and Germany, um, and, and Russia. And that could happen at, at any given moment. And that's what I'm saying. I think we really need to have calm, uh, cool heads. We need to talk about not just supplying weapons, but trying to figure out a way of uh, de-escalating the conflict in Ukraine and bringing to an end the horrific daily death toll now of you know, anything up to 300 uh, Ukrainian troops per day are being killed. A similar number of Russian troops, possibly as many as 30,000 Russians have been killed in this conflict with multiple multiples of that seriously injured, not to mention the, you know, the principal casualties, which are which are civilians like I, I, I would say, you know, we're we're not at any given moment. We're not that far away from an Archduke Ferdinand moment. In other words, an unanticipated event either, you know, an incident at a nuclear power plant in Ukraine or a missile that goes beyond its target and hits something in Poland or in Slovakia or in Hungary. Like, you know, we're this is a really, really dangerous moment. And um, frankly, from a personal perspective, I'm I'm surprised at the lack of energy on the part of the Secretary General of the UN uh, to intervene and get involved and try to broker a ceasefire of some kind. Uh, I'm equally interested in the, the lack of a desire to intervene on the part of the US administration or other administrations to really, you know, get Putin to sit down and talk and take a pause and stop. Feeling. And again, it's, it's, not, it's not that I have any sympathy for Putin or for his, his, his grand design for Europe, which is, which is writ large. I mean, he quoted Peter the Great recently. It's clear that he wants to expand in an imperial war of aggression. But the risk of escalation between Europe and Russia with nuclear powers on both sides. I mean, people with tactical nuclear weapons, that, this is a very, very dangerous moment. And, you know, in the context of a discussion on neutrality, on our, our capacity to defend ourselves, but also on the question of what's going to happen in Ireland in the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, I think now is the time for an informed, open debate about defence, security and neutrality. But I think we need to be careful in the context of Ukraine not to get caught up in the narrative of armament and alignment. I don't think that's useful. And in recent years, we've heard talk about an EU army. What's the latest on that now? Well, there are a number of... There is no European army at the moment. I mean, apart from that uh, battle group system uh, and attempts to coordinate it better at the EU military staffs in Brussels, there isn't really a uh, a European Union army. I mean, there was talk at one point of there being this thing called the Franco-German uh, corps, where they they would bring their militaries together to have one sort of French and German military machine at the heart of Europe. I mean, that that may happen yet, but at the moment, the German military is 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 very poorly resourced. They don't have many serviceable aircraft or you know, armoured fighting vehicles or tanks. So there is no European army as such yet, but the structures to create one are being incrementally introduced, written up, uh, put into place. And really, when it comes to issues like militarisation and armament, history tells us that that can, that can actually happen quite rapidly. So whilst the army itself doesn't exist on the ground as a reality, the structures to facilitate that development are are being put in place, in as I said, incrementally, and then 
you know, if there were a crisis point, you could have militarization quite quite quickly. Well, it's certainly an interesting time in, in history for us all to be living through. Uh, and I mean, it's such a complex issue. Thanks so much, Tom, for talking us through it all today. You're very welcome. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Tom for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you could leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.